is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In this next Dispatches from the Home Garden, we visit a home gardener cultivating ground and community in far interior Northern California. A writer and community-based garden journalist with over 33 years at a daily community-based newspaper, the Reading Record Searchlight. Her gardening history and education grew through her gardening articles, and her garden now reflects this long history of shared stories with others in her community. She sees what a garden is and what gardening means through this larger community lens. She joins us today via Skype from Redding, California. We'll let her take it from here. I'm Laura Christman. I'm 60 years old. I live in Redding, California, which is in the northernmost part of California. And our climate runs very um, hot and cold. Uh, we have very uh, sizzling summers and cold sloshy winters and we have challenges like clay soil, red clay soil that turns gloppy in winter and is hard as a rock in summer. Um, But we live in a really beautiful place. We have Sacramento River running right through our city. Um, We're in the foothills and we have Mount Shasta to the north and Lassen Peak to the east and national parks nearby. So we have a lot of natural beauty too. I grew up in the Mojave Desert of California, and I love the desert. I'm always kind of surprised when people talk about the desert being harsh and ugly and like, no, that's not true. I guess I just admire the scrappy spirit of the plants there and the harsh conditions that they survive in and just the the botanical oddity that results from plants having so many different coping strategies to make it in that kind of environment. And I think it's just a really beautiful place. How long have you been gardening and who would you credit or what would you credit with your own personal growing into a gardener? Yeah, that's a good question about the um, how long you've been a gardener, because then it kind of begs the question like, what is a gardener and mm. when do you get your credentials? And so I guess <laughs> um, I think I've always, in some ways, I haven't really attached that label to me, for, or I guess for a long time, because I always thought a gardener was somebody who really knew what they were doing and I wasn't sure that I was. But um, I think the gardening experience, I, I've always been very interested in plants and like all kids just are really attracted to that that wonder of plants and that you can put a seed and dirt and sunshine and water and suddenly you get all these different variations of, of uh, living things. And so I've, I've definitely always been interested in it and growing up in the desert and seeing the plants there. Um, but I think probably the, my mother was a vegetable gardener in the desert and that was a big accomplishment. And mm-hmm. my grandmother was really somebody who was kind of ahead of her time in terms of organic gardening and really believing that what you ate was important to um, your health as a person and to the planet. And she she used the word organic gardening way before other people were. And um, so she was a big influence on me. And my aunt was also a big gardener. And all three of those women who are important women in my life were living in the Mojave Desert at the same time that I was growing up. So that was a big thing for me. 
like a lot of people. I think I looked at the world pretty broad brush and there's trees and there's shrubs and there's lawns. And I didn't do a lot of noticing and appreciating um, probably really until I became the home and garden editor of the record Searchlight and started interviewing different people involved with plants. And so I think my gardening is pretty much intertwined with my journalism career. Step back and give us the story of the journey that brought you to being a journalist who would seek out a job at a local newspaper, and then how you came to be the house and garden editor there. I majored in journalism at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Both my parents were journalists, and I probably at some level that probably had something to do with it. But at the time, you know, leaving the desert, I wanted to go to a school that was near the beach. So that's how I ended <laughs> up at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And they make you declare a major your freshman year. And so I picked journalism because it had the most electives. And I thought, okay, I'll figure it out later. Um, but I got involved with working on the the Mustang Daily, the college newspaper, and I really enjoyed that. And the chance of just kind of journalism is just this opportunity to learn and keep learning and always be talking to people who are interesting. I ended up working for a paper in Arroyo Grande, which is near San Luis Obispo for a short time. And then a friend and I took a trip for several months across the country. After that, I just scattered my resumes all around uh, the Western United States. And I ended up, I landed in Reading um, at the record searchlight. Right off the bat, right out of school. Um, well, I had that other job mm. for about a year at, okay. a, at a bi-weekly paper. I guess I should say, you know, when you're when you're in journalism school, kind of the the big thing that everybody wants to do is work for a metro, and that was sort of my idea too that I would work a couple years in Reading and then go on to a bigger paper. But I ended up staying at the Record Search site for 33 years, and I really feel very appreciative that I landed in that mm-hmm. occupation where I was able to just have a job where I was constantly learning and doing new things. And originally I did a lot of different jobs at the record search site. Originally I was the features reporter and then I covered city hall and education and regional reporting. And I became the features editor. And then after that is when I went to the home and garden section. I think people sometimes are surprised. They think that I got that job because of my horticulture credentials, and that's not um, in any way true. I I got that job because my um, daughter had just been born, and I was really wanted to work part time. I ended up pitching a job that would be the home, be in charge of the home and garden section, which ran on the weekends. And at that point, we were really running just a bunch of wire stories, and they didn't uh, really fit our area because Mm. most of the wire stories come from the East Coast or they come from maybe San Francisco or Southern California, and they are very different climates and growing conditions than we have in Reading. So I saw that as an opportunity to maybe explore some things. And as features editor, I'd also been working with some gardening groups in town, and I really liked the gardeners. They were always so accessible and... Um, generous with their time and eager to share their experiences. And so I really saw gardening as something with potential throughout that whole time as garden editor, which I did for 19 years. It was really exploring different um, topics about gardening. Sometimes it would just be like, how do you grow an onion? Or 
how, do, how you deal with aphids, or, and sometimes it would be explorations of native plants, the buckeye tree, or um, other interesting, the native oaks, and, and then we would deal with all sorts of just any topic relating to gardening is mm-hmm. what um, that job was about. When did you retire from the, the record searchlight? Um, I retired, I think it was four years ago. Okay. And, and when I was doing the, I should say, when I was doing the gardening, the gardening editor job was 19 years. And then about 10 years into that, I was asked to write a column, a gardening column. And initially, I was kind of reluctant to do that um, because I didn't feel that I was a gardening expert. and I didn't want the column to be about telling people how to garden. Mm-hmm. I approached that column in a very broad-based sense, just a a really loose interpretation of what home and garden was. So I ended up writing about kids and plants and uh, home and home appliances and dogs and cats and donkeys. And it just, I really tried to go with more a concept about growing. I feel very fortunate to have had the chance to do that because I really feel my life was enriched by the people that I was able to meet and talk to. Initially, mm-hmm. I was writing about my own experiences, but then it kind of along the way became a a thing where people would share their experiences with me. And so I, I approached it more as just a thing of let's let's learn together and we would all, we would cover a garden topic and explore it in that way rather than me being the sage on the stage, so to speak, mm-hmm. where I would be dispensing information. It would just be an idea of exploring and looking at different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that really gets us into the meat of what a a regional or locally based garden journalist is and the, the heart of that. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about your where describe your garden and describe your gardening practice now, no matter how you might judge it. Talk okay. to us. Talk to us about the role your garden plays in your life now, and maybe how it changed over that time. Because you've made, you know, you've indicated that there is this sort of ideal in your head of, well, I'm not actually a gardener because I wouldn't fit in that magazine thing. Um, so describe the process of of getting started and um, where you are now with that in your life. My garden, it's not a showcase garden by any means, and I've been to some pretty incredible gardens Mm -hmm. in the North State, but I do take a lot of joy in my garden. As I've been looking around, I realize that um, there's so much in my yard that's really intertwined with my experiences at the Record Searchlight of doing the garden interviews. So whenever I had a chance to meet somebody who was... um, we were exploring a topic, then I would usually come home and try it. So <laughs> if you were to look at my yard, you would see a lot of things out there that actually are the result of my stories. Um, for example, one example of that would be I have two um, plum pluot trees that are growing very close together. And that was a story I did with somebody who was um, had this idea that you intensively planted things close together and kept them really pruned short. You would have better fruit production and it actually turns out to be not that great of an idea, but because um, I never kept on top of it the way that you you would. But so I have those two growing together, and I have a hardy hibiscus that's that's just huge. It's probably about 
eight or nine feet tall, and that was from a woman who grows those in the Redding area. And I never knew you could grow. I always thought that was like a flower from Hawaii. I never realized it grew there. And I have a lot of um, salvia and deer grass in the yard because mm. people have shown me what wonderful plants they are. So there's just a lot of stuff that reflects the stories I've done. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Laura Christman, longtime home and garden editor and gardening columnist for the Reading Record Searchlight. In her own mind, she wasn't a gardener per se when she started the job, but she grew into understanding she was indeed one through the job. As to what it takes to earn your badge as a gardener and be entered into the Great Gardeners Club, she says, all you really need is to plant one seed and you're in. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. It's mid-January, and in my garden, things are nice, spare, and a little slow for now. The sun comes out some days, the cloud and rains come out other days. This conversation with Laura, especially the description of her garden through the years, and how what the garden looked like and featured at any one moment told the story of her, her family, and her work, really moved me. When you look at your garden right now, in the sparest structural moment of January, what does your garden reflect back at you? I'd love to hear and see. Make sure to follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook to stay in touch and let me hear from you. After all, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have conversations about these things we love and which connect us all. Together, we gardeners make a difference for the better in this world. Now back to Laura's story of Stories Shared. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Laura Christman, gardener, writer, and community journalist. Welcome back. I think a garden really reflects kind of where you are at your stage in life and what your interests are and when we moved to this house, we had lived in the country where we'd really faced a lot of challenges with deer and gophers and all that type of things that people in the country deal with. And we went, we moved to this house and the gentleman who had it before, he didn't live here in the summer. So he had kind of had a drought tolerant garden before his time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, it was like a board game. There were all these little pea gravel trails everywhere. And there was a little tiny island of grass with a couple of stunted palm trees that we called that McGee Island because that was where our dog, our old dog at the time where he would hang out. There was not a great abundance of living things there. And so when we came in, we had young kids and we put in a play structure and we put in a big lawn and that was our yard for a while. And then we had an above ground pool that everybody in Reading had from Costco and one of those pools. And, um, and then the yard would just kind of change over time. We'd, we added a, we actually added a pool later and then shrunk the lawn and redid with garden beds and put a raised bed around the pool. Now, uh, two years ago, we brought a puppy into our life. And so now if you looked at our yard, it would just be this Yola containment system where we were trying to keep <laughs> her from ripping out shrubs and things. And we have a lot of you know, my lemon tree is caged to keep her from ripping branches off of it. And so we have these different sections of the yard. And we've kind of created a cat sanctuary out by the pool where the neighborhood cats know that they 
don't have to deal with the dog, so they hang out there and stuff. So <laughs> it's kind of done different things over the year. And then in the front yard, we used to have just the typical square patch of lawn with um, some trees. We had a big palm tree there. And two years ago, as part of California, had a, a program to encourage people to rip up their lawn. And we were ready to do that anyway. We were ready to put our lawn out of its misery. So we uh, recreated that front yard with professional help, um, kind of a design that's uh, drought resistant and native plants out there. Hmm. There are so many things I want to follow up on there. That beautiful idea of if we could have a, a fast time lapse video of how our gardens change over time, it would yeah, be would such be cool. a mirror of us mm-hmm. over time, like little kids, dogs, donkeys all coming in and out and pools going up and coming down and there's some reflection exactly of who we are and where we are at a given time. In terms of your gardening practice now, so the the lawn is basically gone and the front is uh, is that sort of a floriferous native planting? Is that where your salvias and deer grasses are? Um, and what kind of exposure is that? And then the, the back I'm getting a sense is right now fully protected against puppiness, but is also much less small child friendly and much more gardener friendly. That's what it's sounding like. Yeah, and I think the, the backyard is um, getting ready for another transformation. Kent and I have been talking about where we want to go from here. In a way, we're almost circling back to what um, when we started, where it was more drought tolerant and less lawny. Um, because the lawn is basically doing itself in, so we're gonna we have definitely an opportunity to shrink again. The deer grass and the salvia, they're um, they're in both places. They're both in the back and the front. And I always kind of kid around, like in my next life, I will only have deer grass and salvia because I just <laughs> I think they're such great plants where you don't have to think about them. I think probably both. Um, if I had to describe both the front and the back, is that um, they're both. I see both gardens as being a work in progress. And, and that's a reflection of me. I think I'm a work in progress too. And so I want my, I want my yard to continue to kind of change. I never see, I don't see it as working toward an ultimate goal. And I kind of ran into that in my years as a journalist of the types of stories we would receive or looking in magazines and the kind of Sometimes there was this idea that you're working towards an ultimate goal and your garden is going to be this thing that you look at, like it's this turfy decoration right, right. that you just kind of look at. So I don't see that. I, I like a non-fussy garden and I like the garden to be changing and I, I want it to surprise me and I don't really have an end goal in mind. It's like at this stage, this is what it is. And I get a lot of joy from it, And I, but I don't. I mean, you asked about my garden practice and... I'm not somebody who specifically goes out at a certain time of a day and just spends time in the garden. The best time of the garden for me is when I have time. Mm-hmm. Then I go out and I do like to piddle around. Um, right now in the fall, I've just my project has been this thing of processing leaves. I love to take, and this again was uh, something I learned through my job and did a story on was. Um, you know, composting is a great idea, but it can be kind of complicated too if you're trying to do it exactly where you're adding the right percentage of greens and browns and things in this um, master gardener um, workshop that I went to down in Chico. The 
guy who led it said, you know, you can just you can just rot your leaves. You can pile them up, and they turn into this thing called leaf mold, which mm-hmm. is really just a replication of what happens in the forest when the leaves fall and they decompose. And so ever since then, I've been on this kick where it's like the the cinchiest way to make compost. You just you take your leaves and my the leaves from our red oak are the main ones I use, and um, they're pretty big leaves, but I mulch them with the lawnmower and then I just pile them into my compost bins and leave them there for several months and then I get this rich mm. compost. So that's kind of like one of my garden tasks now. I love mindless things where I can just go out in the yard. I love to rake leaves and <laughs> I like to pull weeds and probably my most favorite thing to do or favorite time of year would be um, in the fall when I just go out and I pick a pomegranate and I eat it and I just stare out at my yard, <laughs> kind of stare into space. And so I like, you know, I like kind of the simple non-fussy things. I don't do a lot of precise things with my garden. Yeah. For me, that is the best kind of garden. There are trophy gardens and then there are gardener's gardens. And gardener's yeah, gardens trophy garden, are... that's a great description. <laughs> I think that's kind of, and unfortunately, I think that's kind of the image that gets out there among the general public and sometimes I think people like the whole gardener label I think people sometimes are afraid to try because they think well I'm not a gardener I don't know I don't have right. this information or I don't have these skills and so I was like no if you just put a seed in the ground you're in you you're get to in. be one right exactly you get the brownie badge and <laughs> uh, but I agree with you is this um, this concept of what what is a garden and what does it look like because you know, to you, having grown up in the Mojave Desert, it can look a little bit like the Mojave Desert. And right. so it, it it's this idea of making sure we keep that as expansive as possible. And the same thing with the, the term gardener. If you walk out in the garden and pull a weed, you're you're a gardener. Yeah, um, that counts. Yeah. And I it's funny about the the raking and the processing of leaves. I was working in a public garden that I volunteer in and work with other volunteers and um, I was saying how much I loved at the end of our little crew work, we, I always rake the gravel paths and it always looks so like tidy and clean and like you could take the picture right then. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you can, you know, look at it and say, see, the gardener did come today. And, uh, and she said, well, there is that daily, daily dose, recommended daily dose of either raking or sweeping. Um, and I, I had never really heard it put that way, but I, I can see where that, that's a pull for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the pomegranate, ultimately <laughs> you, um, so you were maybe about 40, maybe 35 when you took over the, or you created this job of home and garden editor. Mm-hmm. At this local paper, which covers an area of about how many? What, what is your population in in the record cir- searchlight circulation? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think Reading itself is a hundred thousand, and mm-hmm. then you know maybe that much again in the surrounding area. And the paper circulated. Um, I'm not sure what the circulation area is now, but you know it circulated into. Trinity County and Siskiyou County mm-hmm. and the nearby areas too. And so you were about 35 when you took over the home and garden section and you kind of created this niche. And then it was, um, I think you said about nine years later when you started to do your column. 
What was the title of your column? It didn't have a title. Okay. And <laughs> it just had my my picture ran with it every week and mm-hmm. and I enjoyed that column greatly and would look it up online and a friend of mine in Reading, um, Julie Nelson, would say, you know, did you read this newest one by Laura? And um, so we would, that's how I was originally alerted to it. And ultimately, these columns, I am assuming it was these columns that were um, compiled into a book entitled Planet Pomegranate. That's right. So tell us a little bit about Planet Pomegranate and the idea of the book and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the specific columns that were pulled out for it. Well, the book um, came about after I retired. Um, and along the way of writing the column, the idea of doing a book had been suggested by some of the readers. I had a lot of people who were very, um, really supportive of the column. Um, and so that, that was part of it. I think... And I had that, so I had that in my mind that maybe I would compile some of my favorite columns into a book when I had the time. But I think maybe probably the most, the strongest reason for me for doing it was that I felt that that was really a special opportunity that I had to write that column. It was a way, I enjoy the other stories that I wrote for the newspaper, but the column was a different style of writing where you got to be really more conversational and it was almost like a letter writing a letter to friends you know and it became Mm -hmm. this two-way conversation like I said where originally it was I was doing sharing my experiences but then other people started sharing theirs with me and just this exploration together and so I did I enjoyed the chance to do that and I felt almost protective of those columns and the columns are all out there thanks to the digital wonders of the world. Um, they're all out there, but they're kind of hard to find. And I felt like doing the book was a way to sort of, you know, in a motherly way, sort of gather them up and I'll protect them and have them in one place. And I also saw, I also saw the value of doing a book. I helped my father in his last chapter of life, um, finish his book and do the editing for him. And it really had a powerful impact on me because I saw the value of having a book. And even though we had known some of those stories that he had shared with us over the years, I felt that a lot of stories probably would have been lost if he had not done the book. And the book Mm. was um, really important and well-received. And I thought, wow, that's a really great thing to do. So I've become, it's something I believe in strongly that people should People should write their stories and share their stories, whether or not it's about gardening. I just, I think that's a great thing to do. So this was kind of, I had sort of an easy way to do it because I'd already written a lot of my Mm -hmm. stories in the book. Um, As you know, if if you've been uh, thumbing through it, it's not just about plants. It's a lot about my kids and being a parent and different reflections on that too. Um, So that's, that's how the book came about. Um, the title Planet Pomegranate, I was just kicking around some different ideas. And I, I like the concept that when you're gardening, you don't have to garden like anybody else. You're, you bring your own experiences of the place that shaped you and the place where you garden. 
it's your own little world that you're creating and it doesn't have to be like somebody else's world. If I had my own world, it would be planet pomegranate because pomegranate is such a great thing to grow and I love to eat them. I love the flavor of them, but I just love that they're this inconvenient fruit that it takes time to eat. You can't just multitask when you're eating a pomegranate. You kind of have to devote your full attention to that. And that's sort of theme of the book of just slowing down and noticing and appreciating more. Mm-hmm. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Laura Christman, longtime home and garden editor and gardening columnist for the Reading Record Searchlight in Reading, California, a frying pan summer kind of place, as she describes it. In our conversation, I was moved by her awareness and reminder to us that gardening is a practice, a process of awareness, community, and generosity, not a destination in some static or perceived to be perfect photograph or mental image. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's me again. I want to follow up on the idea of stories shared that I talked about in the last break. And the moment in this conversation with Laura when she describes the importance of writing our stories down, of sharing them with others over time and space, how she worked with her father on this process at the end of his life, and how she worked on it herself to put her columns together into this book, Planet Pomegranate. This very idea of documenting and sharing our stories is at the heart of Cultivating Place. But even more so, it's at the heart of the Dispatches from the Home Garden series of Cultivating Place. I get lots of comments that these episodes specifically stand out to many listeners as their favorite episodes. So here's a thought. How about you? How about you share your garden journey story? I think it might help you fulfill all of your New Year's resolutions, and it will certainly help fulfill mine. So if you're interested, and it's fun, I'm not scary in any way, I promise. Send me your information and a little something about why you'd like to be a Dispatches guest. I'm excited to hear from you. Just email me, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. Okay, now back to Laura's story of her garden, her dogs, her donkeys and kids, and creative love of a gardening life. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break with Laura Christman, gardener, writer, and community-based journalist. Welcome back. You have a a wonderful quote. Um, I've tagged as many as I can. Um, But you you say, I I am, you know... uh, you definitely identify as as a gardener and a, a writing gardener as you work your way through these columns. I believe they are in somewhat chronological order. Um, I don't know if that very first one about gardening and gardening with a dog uh, is was in fact one of the earliest ones, but it, it seems like you might have circled back to this theme in your life with a new dog mm-hmm. now. Um, <laughs> and you you admit that you are you know, you are writing about gardening, which is to say you are writing about life. And um, the column that covers the pomegranate is a particularly beautiful one. And so I want to spend just a little bit more time there. Um, 
you you've touched on what you get to in that column. Um, but if you would go through it again in terms of, you know, this is a, a particularly good plant for our climate, and it's a very seasonal marker in our climate. It's been in our part of the world since the Spanish, I think, brought it. And it forces you, if you're going to do it well, it forces you to have this kind of relationship with it. <laughs> yeah. So the, we had pomegranate trees in the desert, too. And they were one of the few trees from other places you could, you know, stick into the ground in the Mojave Desert. And they were agreeable to growing there. So that maybe I appreciate them for that, too. But um, I really just... I love to eat a pomegranate. It's uh, I just think they're wonderful things. And I know a lot of people decorate it with them. And it's like, oh, no, you should be eating it. Um, and I think the plant itself, like if I'm looking right now at my pomegranate tree, and it's really pretty. It's turned these bright yellow leaves. But for a lot of the year, you wouldn't. it's not a plant that you're like, wow, look mm. at that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of shrubby. I, mean, I don't even know if it's a tree or a shrub. Um, but it's... You know, I again, I like that kind of scrappy spirit of it. That it's um, it's uh, hearty, and then it gives you something really wonderful at the end. And um, and you have to take the time to really appreciate it when you eat it. You can't just be snacking on it like an apple when you're on the run doing something else. You, I, I always feel like you have to really sit down and work at it and extract those seeds. Mm-hmm and eat it. And it's funny, you mentioned Julie Nelson. Um, I think maybe the first time I met her, we have a mutual friend and we made pomegranate jelly. We went to Julie's house and made this jelly and it was just a wild time of <laughs> trying to figure out how to turn pomegranates into jelly. So that was really fun too. And you mentioned in the column that um, if you come from a place where you can grow pomegranates, and we do, um, gardeners and growers are very opinionated, and you will get every opinion under the sun on how to seed that pomegranate. Um, <laughs> I would like you to describe very specifically how you eat a pomegranate, Laura. Okay. Well, I am pretty opinionated on that because <laughs> <laughs> people have, you know, there's a colleague at work and he bought some kind of thing where you just, you stick your pomegranate on it and beat it. And it's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Um, so I, I take a kind and gentle approach to the pomegranates. Um, you take your pomegranate and you take your knife and you very carefully cut at the top the um the blossom end part that you you kind of angle your knife a small knife <laughs> and you cut it like similar to how you would do a jack-o-lantern and you're just cutting off that top part without trying to cut any of the seeds and then when it's exposed you can kind of see the different segments there and you score lightly Um, Now, my son and I have been having this conversation this fall about it because my grandmother always told me you had to score along kind of where the segments are. But my son was noticing you can score it anywhere into four equal parts and it works quite fine. So um, you just lightly score it and then you can break it apart and it falls apart nicely into these, um, these segments and then you carefully pick out the seeds. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything brutal to it. <laughs> I liked this humane pomegranate approach, <laughs> um, and uh, I think 
there are people who love the the task and the work and the challenge and the sweet reward at the end, and there are other people who say, why in heaven's name would you go to all that trouble? But um, <laughs> it is kind of reflective of gardening in this place at any rate at this time of year specifically. The one of the themes that keeps coming up for me in reading your your work in the book, but also in talking in, in what you've said so far in this conversation, um, is this idea that there there is this idea of what a garden should look like that is kind of promulgated by our garden media and by static photographs. And I think your experience as a regionally based garden journalist or garden communicator where you're talking to people and sharing information is that there is that picture. And then if you just take that picture away under or behind it, you see what gardening actually is. And you get these crazy, funny stories about the guy with the largest tomato that's grown without water or you get <laughs> the – um, this this community of people who are all out there actually doing this thing that we call gardening uh, in their own ways every day and that we as gardeners love to share these quirky stories. Yeah, I think, too, that a lot of the, the big garden media and the magazines, the slick, glossy magazines and stuff, they, they promote that, and there are many, not to... Uh, have the wrong impression. I mean, there are so many wonderful things about gardening in terms of mental health and physical health and and all these, uh, and the beauty it offers and the rewards you get from it. Um, but it also can be extremely frustrating, mm. especially in a place like Reading where it's um, so hot in the summer and the soils are challenging and things. And so I, I think... Uh, Maybe if you had a garden column that had been written more in a tone of um, this is how you fertilize or this is how you have a great lawn or something, I think there would have been less chance of connecting with the community. And mm -hmm. I think I really leaned into the frustration part of it when I was writing because I and that wasn't at all embellished. I mean, I really do have had a lot of challenges and stuff, but I think that people like to commiserate together and just um, also maybe just the connection of place and that we all are going through these same challenges together. So I it did end up being a thing where people wanted to connect and tell their stories and share their successes and things. And I that to me is really my favorite part of being a garden journalist was just the people that I met. I mean, I, I, I think I write in the book that um, where there is gardening, there is goodness, because um, the gardeners are so fun and they're just so into it. And they also want to help you if you have a problem, they mm -hmm. want to offer solutions and ideas. And so that's really the joy was getting to meet some of these people and hear their stories of kind of the weird things that are that were going on in their yards right, too. Right. And I love the um, theme in the book of the people that call you back on a fairly regular basis to say, hey, this is that weird gardener and here's yeah. my newest weird thing. Um, I thought that was that was great. And um, you say this really beautifully in the opening of the book, the Let's be honest, we gardeners take a certain perverse joy in our woes. <laughs> in Redding, California, we wear our frying pan summers and red clay soil like badges of honor. And I, I do, I think that is 
very universal no matter where you are. There are those um, challenges that uh, connect us as, as gardeners wherever we happen to be. And that also kinds of kind of brings up for me this concept of the longstanding value of regionally based garden journalism. And I think that to some extent, blogs are stepping in to fill the gap and podcasts are stepping in to fill the gap. But as our local print papers are, you know, trying to reframe themselves in this new digital world, one of the um, losses that I see, and it's, it's not just this last five years, it's this last 20 years, that one of the first things that we see go are things like home and garden coverage. And they pick up wire stories. And so, you know, me as a gardener sitting in Chico, California, picks up my paper and there's something off the AP from Washington, D.C. about what I should be doing in my garden. And I just, yeah, I want to chuckle with my coffee (laughs) over uh, what that has to do with me because that is a different planet. And it is not planet planet pomegranate, I will tell you. (laughs) I was recently at a workshop um, where I was presenting and a young woman came up to me and said, well, you know, I'm sort of an aspiring garden communicator, garden writer, and, you know, do you have any advice for me? And... um, do you think I should even do this? And all I could say was, we, we need we need you. We need every place needs a good garden communicator to be this sort of hub or glue to have these things being talked about because that's how we learn. Certainly, I, I'm hearing it's how you learned. It's certainly how I learn. It's how we stay connected to remember the value on all those different levels of beauty, of practicality, of physicality of spirit um, that this activity does for us. Yeah, I share your concern. um, And I don't know what the answer is. Um, It's the beauty of community journalism, I think, and why I feel so fortunate that I landed in newspapers and had a career for so long here is that you have this connection. And so I didn't work for Metro, so I don't know for sure, but it is. But I think, like, um, in my writing for the newspaper here, you you go to the grocery store and people know who you are, and um, people don't feel shy about calling you and telling you about your garden, and you can just immediately go out and, you know, visit their garden and and talk to them. And and so there's that great connection um, through community journalism and just that sharing um, and yeah, you don't get that with a wire story, especially if it's coming from Washington D.C., where they have rain in the summer. You know, right, just, right. That doesn't that doesn't work. And I do. I, there are these blogs and things that um, that's good. I what I worry about. I think what was nice with the newspaper and the gardening column was that you're accessing everyone, or you're making yourself available to uh, a lot of different people. What I find sometimes, like if I'm at a master gardener meeting or a different group of gardeners, you often find like this, you know, everybody's kind of nodding in agreement and we're all, we're all on board and that's great, but you also want to get 
people that don't know what is mulch or mm-hmm. what is that, you know, and, and sometimes I can think if you, if you spend a lot of time with gardeners, you kind of um, start to lose sight that, wow, there's a lot of people just with the very basics that don't know it or, you know, are still doing some of these things like burning their leaves in the fall and right. <laughs> doing or topping trees or stuff because they just, that's what they grew up with or that's what they see and that's what they do. And so you don't want to make um, gardening and stories about gardening and discussions only for the people that are already doing on it. Board. Yeah. yeah. We have our own little garden gardener echo chamber, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is which is you're exactly right, and it is um, I think one of the great joys of um, a garden column in a local newspaper that is you know widely available, um, or on the radio if it's available to public audiences um, is is really I think it's key. I think one of like one of the greatest col- one of the greatest compliments I would get would people like. Well, I don't really care about gardening, but I read your column. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, well, hopefully you're going to learn not to top your trees. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So when you, and I, I think you have sort of touched on this, but when you look over the, when you were putting this book together and you look back over all of these columns over what I think I'm calculating to be about 11 years, is that right? I think it was about nine years. Nine years. So you put these all together. What what were some of your – do you have one or two favorite stories? And then sort of as part of that, what were some of the biggest gardening lessons, whether they're practical or existential, that you came away from? Um. Yeah, as far as the book, the favorite columns, I mean, there's some about my kids that are really um, special to me. And I recently talked to a book group here in Reading, and um, it was nice to hear that a lot of those columns, too, resonated with the people there. Um, So probably one of my favorites is the one about um, my daughter making a paper dress, and I was you know, saying, no, you can't make a dress out of paper. And then she ended up making this dress out of paper. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, in the terms of the the gardening ones, it's always great when you can be on scene with somebody. So what a couple of the experiences I really enjoyed that are in the book um, were going out with these guys who are the acorn counters, and they've been there two university professors and they've been counting acorns throughout California at specific sites since the 1990s and they issue an acorn report every year and it's really zany they just it's like uh, your your strange ants uh, Christmas newsletter and then at the very end they talk about the acorn count and so I'd been following that newsletter for quite a few years and I got to go out with them they showed up at Whiskey Town National Recreation Area right near Reading and I got to go out with them while they counted acorns, and that was really fun. And um, I think oh, the ones like the dragonfly hunt, Kathy Biggs, an expert on dragonflies, she invited me to go with her on a dragonfly hunt, and we were down in this marshy area looking for them. And I 
had no idea what people do when they are looking for dragonflies. And she was just so enthusiastic about it. She just loved dragonflies. And that was, that was really fun. But sometimes just a simple thing. Um, there's a column later in the book where um, a woman named Marjorie, she'd been gardening for many decades. And she called me because she wanted to share this flower in her garden. It's called the Golden Glow. And it's, um, they used to call it the outhouse flower because people used to plant it near their outhouses. And she wanted me to come and see her golden glow. And I kind of, I got busy with other stuff and I ended up um, kind of forgetting her message, but then calling her back later and going down there. And the golden glow was almost completely gone, but there were just a few uh, flowers still there. But just the chance to uh, spend some time in a garden with a gardener like her and just I mean I think she sort of was almost like an embodiment of so many people that I've met that have offered their time and expertise and shared it so generously and and we walked around her garden and the story kind of turned from being this story about the golden globe to just being a story about her and how she approached gardening and she she had lived in different places um, and she had moved certain plants with her from garden to garden mm. over this period of like 50 years. And she still had some of these plants in her garden. And we were just walking. She was, I don't, I don't really know how old she was at that time, but um, we were walking through the garden with her cat cheddar and she would just be pointing out like this is my favorite plant and then we go a few more steps and like this is my favorite plant <laughs> this is one of my favorite plants and she would just share the story of each plant and some of them were gifts of um plants that someone had cutting that she had given to someone and and so that's just a that's a really rich experience just for mm -hmm. someone to take the time and share their garden with you and i just uh, i really love that mm -hmm. and I would say, you know, that sort of pulls us back around to the beginning of our conversation when you are describing your garden and you can look at it and say, and that hibiscus is from that story. And that right, is yeah. from that story. And that is because of the first dog. And that's, that's really a lot of richness uh, are held in the narratives that our gardens represent. And you were talking too about, I think, like one of the things when I was compiling the book, I was like, oh, it's so scattershot. It's just all these, you know, donkeys, kids, pomegranates. It's all these different things. Um, but I did find kind of in doing the book and reading through it that in the years of writing that column, there had been some recurring themes and so you asked like kind of what I, what are my takeaway lessons maybe, mm -hmm. um, was just, I think this idea of, you know, as you learn as a gardener and I said at the beginning, I was pretty broad brush of just, you know, Hey, there's some green out there. That's, those are plants. And as I've learned more, um, you just, you notice more and you slow down. And when you notice that, plant or the little flower whatever it is the berry um you just appreciate it more and i think one of the things i'm really grateful for too is just the native plant enthusiasts in the reading area and how much i've learned from them about the plants that are around us and my connection to plants now is not so much really in my own yard but just being out in the in the nature and uh, my husband and I, we do a lot of, we hike and bike and walk the dog and just 
I'm noticing, I just find I'm noticing the little plants and even the fungus that pops up and mm-hmm. all of that. So I think that's a great thing if we can just slow down and appreciate more. So I think that's one of the themes of the book and also being focusing that it's the it's the process that's more important. It's the journey or the adventure of gardening that's more important than the results. And you shouldn't worry about failing, you know, because mm-hmm. that's part of trying. I mean, that sounds kind of trite, but it's just this idea that, um, you know, appreciate, appreciate being in it and trying and doing mm-hmm. rather than what you're going to get. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. Well, thank you. I'm such a fan of all your work. I really appreciate all you do. Laura Christman is a gardener and writer living in Northern California. She spent 33 years of her journalistic career as variously a features writer, features editor, home and garden editor, and gardening columnist for the Reading Record Searchlight in Reading, California. While Laura is retired from her newspaper-based journalism career, you can pretty regularly find her human and humorous garden and nature-loving work in Enjoy magazine of Northern California Living. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. To see many photos illustrating my conversation with Laura, visit cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter for updates on guests, events, and monthly garden musings. If this program resonated with you, share it with others, and make sure to connect with me and other like-minded gardening folk at Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.